Father, we come to you, and it seems like your word keeps drawing your sheep to yourself, as if what you promised in John is true, that those who are truly your sheep will hear your voice. And I pray, Father, today, as we preach once again your word, as we open up your scriptures and see the message that you have for us, that you would speak uh, through me, but also beyond me, and reveal into the hearts of these people sweetness and beauty that my words or preparation could never achieve on its own. Uh, may the Spirit deliver these truths deep into our hearts. May the Son's sacrifice on the cross be amplified in our hearts. And may the Father receive all the glory for all that he has done in our salvation. Thank you, Father, for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so friends, today we are continuing in our short sermon series through the Gospel of Luke, where we're going to be tracing out uh, the the account of Jesus' life, right? There are four accounts of that in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to do Luke, but we're not going to do all of Luke. We're just going to do the first section of Luke, uh, where he talks about uh, the birth of Jesus, the story before the birth of Jesus, and then the birth account itself. We started in chapter one last week with the story of Zechariah, okay? We're going to move on in chapter one this week, and we'll end in chapter two on December 24th with the actual birth event itself, okay? Um, So if you were with us last Sunday, then you would know the, the whole reason why Luke put this account together is because he wanted to help his friend, his acquaintance, Theophilus, process through some of the doubts and hesitance and questions that he had about the Christian faith. We see that in Luke chapter one, verse three. This was for most excellent Theophilus because he was questioning, right? Is this Christian thing for real? Is Christ really who he says he is? Is this worth giving my life to? Because all the Christians back then were being killed to. He wanted to make sure that this was true. Um, so Luke put this account together to help him help Theophilus through this faith journey. And you may be here today and you're already a Christian. Okay, you already have most of your questions answered and you don't feel like there's this nagging deep doubt anymore in your heart about Christ. This is still relevant for us. Don't, don't check out. Uh, why? Because we all still do have questions, don't we? Even believers have questions. And I, I believe that this account will help us uh, grow in the reason for our faith. And I also think it'll help us be a better communicator of our faith as we are always ready in and out of season to give a what, Paul says, a reason for our faith to those who ask, okay? So this will help us do that, so don't check out. But if you're here today and you happen to have a deeper sort of weightier doubt about Christ, about Christianity, about who he is, what he's done, and because of that, you're not a Christian yet. You're still kind of figuring out this whole Christianity thing, this whole gospel thing. My hope is that this account can aid you in that journey because there really isn't anything else that's more important than, than for you to get to the bottom of those questions, is there? Because at this point on, all stakes are high, right? A claim has been made that this guy named Jesus who walked the earth about 2,000 years ago, he's not just a normal person, he's actually God in the flesh who came and lived the life that you should have lived but couldn't, then died the death that we all should have died but didn't so that he can trade places with us and give us life eternal. Like that claim has been made and from this point on, all stakes are high, 
right? Any route you take from here on out has huge complications. For example, uh, you believe it's true when it's not true. If that's the route you take, that you believe it's true when it's not true, then you're the biggest fool that's ever lived. That's what Paul says. We're the most sorry people that's ever lived if you believe it's true when it's not true. Because you'll be giving up your whole life for a lie. But what if it's true, but you don't believe it? Well, then you're eternally ruined. <laughs> it's pretty high stakes. What if it's not, it's not true and you don't believe it? Then, then good on you. That means you'd have dodged the biggest bullet in your life, right? This cult would have swallowed you whole, okay? But you were smarter than that and you ran away as fast as you could. Huge stakes. Or what if it's true and you believe it? Well, then your eternity and your whole life will be changed. All stakes are high, and you gotta get to the bottom of this question. Is Jesus really who he says he is? Did he really come to do what he said he'd do? And what do I do, like Theophilus, what do I do with the doubts that I have? Okay, well, let's jump into it and see what God has to say to us through Luke's words here to doubting Theophilus. In Luke chapter one, verse 26 to 38, this is the word of God. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Thus says the Lord. A story perhaps familiar to most of us, if not all of us, and today we're going to see how Luke moved away from the Zachariah story and scene we saw last week, scene one, to Mary's story here, which is scene two in this story of the beginning of Jesus' birth, okay? And there are four things that I want to point out from this scene we just read. Four things. First, the implausibility of Mary's pregnancy. Second, the child in Mary's womb. Third, the faith in Mary's question. And four, the resolve in Mary's response. Okay? The implausibility of Mary's pregnancy, the child in Mary's womb, the faith in Mary's question, and the resolve in Mary's response. Let's go with the first point, the implausibility of Mary's pregnancy. Okay, so we got to do a lot of comparison here with this scene and last week's scene because the whole point of Luke writing it this way is to kind of make that contrast clear. Okay, so if you remember, last week in Zachariah's story, what happened? We saw the same thing occur, right? 
an unlikely birth pregnancy event happened. A priest named Zachariah, if you remember, uh, with his wife Elizabeth, and they're both already past childbearing years. Uh, they were visited by an angel, and then they conceived a son named John the Baptist. Okay, now, scene two, it happened again. <laughs> Almost the exact same scene. You know, and it's like, man, those are two back-to-back unconventional birth stories. What's the point of the repetition here of the angel visiting and then somebody who wasn't supposed to get pregnant gets pregnant? What's the point? Well, the whole point of this repetition is because God is trying to help us see here that the story of Jesus' birth, the beginnings of it, is actually a part of a larger story. What do I mean? Okay, think about how God moved his redemption story forward in the Old Testament. Think about the events that happened there. How did he do it? Did he not do it in the same way with unconventional birth stories, right? There, if you think about it, there are tons of them. There's Abraham and, uh, and Sarah with Isaac, right? A couple who wasn't supposed to, biologically can't have kids, angel visited, and then life came out of nothing. Life came out of death, so to speak. And then you have uh, Manoah with Samson, that's another unconventional birth, and you have tons of others. And, and you see that God here is trying to make the point throughout the Old Testament and now in the New Testament of stories of him visiting a couple who, humanly speaking, cannot have life come out of life. And the question is, why did God choose to move his redemption story forward through these specific events? where he miraculously gives life to a situation when there was no hope for it. Why was that his method of choice? Because is that not the whole point of the gospel? Is that not what the good news is about? Right, that God can give life to a people who are in a situation where humanly speaking, it was impossible for them to attain life for themselves. Is that not the gospel in a nutshell? And God's making that point clear over and over again in the Old Testament, and he continues to do so here through the births of John the Baptist, scene one, and Jesus Christ's birth here in scene two. But this theme of of human incapability to achieve true life on our own, it's emphasized even more thick and weighty here um, in the contrast of Zachariah's story and Jesus' story, okay? Let me remind us again about what happened last week in Zechariah's story. Remember what we saw? If you were here, remember the scene. There was this big temple, right? And there was this bussing worship service happening. There was a priest burning incense, Zechariah. He was sacrificing animals. He was praying with thousands of people, begging for God to come and have mercy upon them. And it's like, man, if there is ever a scene for God to swoop in, you know, and save us in, it'd be this scene, right? The worship service, we're all praying and doing all this kind of religious rituals, but he didn't. He didn't come in and swoop in in this scene. Why not? Because God's trying to tell us here that, look, you can do all you want. You can, you can pray and shout and burn incense and do all the religious stuff that you want to do to attain eternal life with their own religious efforts, but trying to do that is as humanly impossible as creating life in an unfertilized virgin's womb. With human effort, you can't do it. It won't happen. It's impossible for humans. So, 
God instead visits a young lady. In Nazareth, a city so small that it had to be specified in relation to the next larger city next to it, Galilee. By the way, that's how you know you're from a small town. When you give people the largest next city as a reference for them to know where it is. They don't know where this place, Nazareth, where is that? Oh, it's near Galilee. So God didn't come to this huge temple, you know, filled with all this religious efforts to attain eternal life. God came to an unknown small town where a young lady who must have been in her late teens or early 20s at most, doing what? Not burning incense, not offering sacrificial animals, not leading a worship service. And God came to this woman in verse 30 and said, you have found favor with God. The angel said, you have found favor with God. To this scene, instead of the first one, the long-awaited Messiah of the Old Testament will enter into this world through your womb, the angel said. God swooped in in the unexpected scene. It's like she was the wrong age. She came from the wrong social economic background. She lived in the wrong part of town. And she was a virgin. She was only betrothed, it says at the time, okay, to this man named Joseph in verse 27, not married yet. So you know how today we have sangjit, right? Or tepai, or we have these things that like say we're engaged, but, but back then there was a version of a sangjit, okay? But it's not sangjit, it's more official than sangjit because back then it's called a betrothal. When you're betrothed, you're actually legally married. But you can't live under the same roof and you can't sleep together until the wedding ceremony happens. So Mary and Joseph were just betrothed. They weren't married yet. And it could take up to like a year between the betrothal process and the uh, wedding ceremony before they can uh, live in the same roof and sleep together. Bless their hearts, I know. But they're living together, okay, or with kind of each other but not really for like a year and they haven't slept with each other yet. And she's a virgin. And let's summarize this scene. Scene one, huge temple service, tons of religious stuff going on, right? Burning incense, sacrificing animals. Scene two, a virgin who came from the wrong side of town. And the Messiah chose to come in scene number two. It's like, what? Do you see how the narrative went from unexpected to unlikely or improbable, and then when we learn that she was a virgin, to being, being utterly impossible. This is impossible. There's no way life can come out of nothing if it's based on Matt's effort. But God is saying here, that's the gospel. I will make available to you the eternal life that you could have never achieved on your own. It would have been impossible for you to do on your own. I'm doing it for you. That's the point. That's the good news. Okay, but how? How would God do that? Well, let's move on to the second part of the story. Through the child in Mary's womb. Point two. Okay, we've seen that this child is born in a way that was similar to all the other Old Testament kind of key people, right, who were born through an unlikely birth. But, but this one is different. We see differences about Jesus compared to all these other children in the Old Testament. Where do we see that? Well, let's go on to verse 32. The angel said that this child will be great, full stop. That's a big deal. 
this child will be great, full stop. Because everyone else in the Bible, when they're described as great, it's almost always followed up by a qualifier. They're great before the Lord. Okay, that's always with that. Even John the Baptist, if you read it in the last scene, it says, he will be great before the Lord. Meaning, their greatness is a perceived greatness. It is not intrinsic within themselves. But Jesus here is called great, full stop. Guess who else in the Old Testament is always called great, full stop? Yahweh. God is great, full stop. His greatness is intrinsic upon himself. Okay, first clue. So this child is described in the same way God was described in the Old Testament. He will also be called the son of the most high, verse 32 says. So not only is he the prophet of the most high, like John the Baptist will be described later in chapter one, or a priest of the most high or a servant of the most high, primarily he is the son of the most high. This child's relationship with God will not be role-based. He's the son of God, okay? So this God-like, intrinsically great son of God will rule God's people as a great king, like King David was in the Old Testament, verse 32 continues to say, for how long? Forever. It's like, what human being can rule forever? And in case, you know, you heard that wrong, the angel repeated it again. His kingdom will have no end. And at this point, it's either blasphemy or this kid is God. <laughs> There's two options. It's blasphemy or this child is God. Like, who else, you know, is described intrinsically great as Yahweh in the Old Testament? Who else will reign over God's people forever in a kingdom that has no end? And, by the way, if you know anything about God at all from the Old Testament, what's, like, one thing he's not a big fan of? He is not a big fan of sharing his throne. That does not happen. That's called idolatry. You don't do that. But yet, this child will sit on it forever. Here's what the angel's saying. Mary, you might want to sit down for this one. Okay. You're Jewish, you know about the Messiah, you know about this coming savior, right? You know the Old Testament, that's great. That this person will come, and God will send this person to save the world. You know that's gonna happen. Here are two additional details that you didn't know. First, he's actually gonna come through your womb. Surprise. Second, he's actually gonna be God himself. So then Mary responds, I have a few questions, which is point three. The faith in Mary's questions, or Mary's question, one question. Now, this is what I find really interesting, okay? Because if you notice this scene and last scene, another similarity here is that Mary asked a question, or Mary questioned the angel, just like who did? Zachariah. He asked a question too. Right? Just one scene before this, we saw the same angel tell Zechariah about how life will appear from Elizabeth's lifeless womb. Zechariah questioned the angel what happened to him. He got punished. But now, the same angel tells Mary that life will appear out of her virgin womb, 
Mary questions the angel. What did she get? A nice answer. It's like, how, how does that work? Did he, she just like catch Gabriel on a good day? Like, what, what was going on? You know, why did Mary get a different response for her question than Zachariah? They're both questions. Because the difference is, Mary's question here was actually full of faith. It was. Zachariah's question was full of doubt. How so? Do you remember what Zachariah specifically asked the angel last week we studied in chapter 1, verse 18? He asked, how shall I know this? How shall I know this? You know what he's asking for there? He's really asking for a sign. He's saying, how am I, where's my proof? Like, how shall I know? How am I going to know this is going to happen? Where is it? But Mary didn't ask, how shall I know that this is going to happen? Look at verse 34. What did she actually say? She said, how will this be? Or in other words, how will this happen? Not how can I know it's going to happen, but how will this happen? You see the difference? Mary is saying, okay, I trust the promise. I do. But how it's going to happen still makes no sense to me. Why? Because I'm a virgin. <laughs> like it's biologically not possible for me to have a kid now, and how is God going to work around that? See, contrary to modern belief, people back then weren't dumb. <laughs> they knew basic biology, okay? Mary didn't just go, oh, when's the due date? You know, like, what? no. She knew this is not common. Verse 29 said, Mary tried to discern what the angel was saying. Discern. The Greek word for discern there means she was weighing the situation. She used reason and logic and thoughtfulness. She had questions. But having questions doesn't always mean lack of faith. Mary's question here actually proved that she was taking God's promise seriously. Because I'm taking this seriously, I therefore have some questions. So, you know what that means for all of you here who have questions? That means that you're taking God's word seriously. If, like Mary, you're going virgin birth, you know, hmm, give me a second on that. You know what that means? That means you're taking it seriously. That's not necessarily doubt. Perhaps, like Mary, you're using discernment to connect the dots. That's what faith looks like. You know what doubt looks like? You know what it looks like? Doubt looks like Zachariah, who went, oh yeah? Show me a sign then. Show me, write it on the sky, God, that you exist. Bring fire down, from, show me a sign. Tell me that you're real. That's doubt. That's not serious inquiry. That's facetiousness. That's jesting. If you're actually taking it seriously, you won't be facetious like Zachariah. You'll be inquisitive like Mary. And the angel knew that. So Mary got a nice answer in verse 35. And this answer, I believe, is 
biblically elegant, efficient, and effective, and succinct because it cuts right to the chase. It does. The angel cuts to the baseline worldview starting point, and that is where everything hinges on, your starting point, your baseline worldview starting point. Let's see what the angel, the angel said. The angel said, how is it going to happen? The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy Son of God. Now, what an interesting choice of answer. What an interesting description here. That, I mean, the angel could have given more detail, right, about the incarnation, like Paul did, for example, in Philippians chapter 2. He can get more technical with it, like John in chapter 1, like we just read, right, the word became flesh and all that. But he chose, the Holy Spirit chose to use an imagery instead of this painting. Picture this in your head. There's a lifeless womb, okay, and when the Holy Spirit overshadows or hovers over this lifeless womb, life will appear from it. Why that image? Well, can you think of another time in the Bible where the Holy Spirit, specifically the Holy Spirit as well, hovered over another lifeless body of water, which then caused from within this lifeless body of water life to appear? When did that happen? Genesis 1. The angel's wording here is uncanny to the Genesis 1 creation event. Derek Kidner, uh, Kidner, an Old Testament commentator that I love, and if you guys want to learn how to write beautifully, read this guy. Derek Kidner, Old Testament commentator, and he said this. Hovering over the waters of Mary's womb, the Holy Spirit brought life out of nothing, just as he did in first creation. The Holy Spirit started the process of new creation through Christ in the same way he started the process of first creation in Eden by hovering over something lifeless and out of the deadness he brought life. And here's what I believe the angel's point is. He's saying this. It all depends on your starting point. If you believe, okay, that there is a creator, if you believe that there is a creator who created life out of nothing in Genesis 1, then why is it so hard to believe that he can repeat the process in Luke chapter 1? It, what's your starting point? That's the big question. What's your presupposition? What is your assumption about what is true about life? Now, if you don't believe in a God who created nature and is therefore above natural law, if, you, if that's your starting point, well then of course, something like a virgin birth would make absolutely no sense to you. It'll sound crazy. It all hinges on your starting point. And I know that wasn't a holistically satisfying answer, okay? And actually, I deleted a lot for my sermon on this point, okay? Because it'll be too much of a sidetrack. But if you want to nerd out with me later, I'm all about it, okay? I'll be right here after the service. We can talk more about the implications here because I've got to get this out somehow, okay? It's, I'm dying to do that. But I won't talk about it now. Please come later. We'll chat about it. But for now, let's just stick with the text and see how the angel answered Mary's question kindly, gently, lovingly. So for you out there who have questions, don't shy away from them. 
Don't be embarrassed by them. Ask them boldly. Now, don't be facetious like Zechariah, but seriously inquire. God won't be angry at that. In fact, he loves it. He does. Look at what the angel said to Mary after she asked her question. Angel said this, you know what? Not only am I going to answer you, I'll do you one better. I'll give you a sign anyways, although you didn't ask for it like Zechariah. What sign? Look at verse 36. Behold, the angel said. That word behold there was the same word he used to answer Zechariah when he asked for a sign. Angel said, behold, you'll be mute. <laughs> Doubt, right? Here, the angel said, behold. Um, where is it? Elizabeth, your relative, will also be pregnant, although she's past childbearing years. I'm going to throw you a bone, Mary. I'm going to be extra gracious to you, although you didn't ask for it. Here's an additional encouragement for your faith, Elizabeth pregnancy. So that you can see that really, the angel says in verse 37, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is. So Mary receives this answer, gets an extra bone thrown in by the angel because of her faith, and she said, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. From there on out, she was wholly abandoned for this redemption plan. Whatever it is that you need me to do to make this happen, Mary's saying, I'm here for it. I'm here for it. This good news changed the whole course of her life. Now, why? Why did it change her life? She didn't know the details like we do now, right? Like she didn't know about the cross. She didn't know about the resurrection yet or anything like that. But you know what she did believe? at this point. She believed the angel's words, which is the basic tenet of the Christian faith. What is it? What did the angel tell her that she believed in? She believed that God will punch a hole through space and time to come and rescue her. That's it at this point. She believed that God will punch a hole through space and time to come and rescue her. And if you believe that, just that, and I mean really believe it, how does your life stay the same? God punched a hole through space and time to rescue you. If you believe that the creator of the universe found it worthwhile to impose upon himself creaturely limitations in order to save you, how do you, after hearing that, just go on with your life like nothing happened? Dorothy Sayers, a well-respected British author, who was a Christian, mostly wrote uh, novels and fiction, but she was, she was a Christian. She put the incarnation so well. She said this, for whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited, and suffering and subject to sorrows and death, he had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he's playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money 
to the worst of horrors and pain of humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it all well worthwhile. Why was it well worthwhile? So you can be saved. Mary knew, though perhaps not the whole, but at least in part, that this is what's going on. And it changed her. Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Which leads us to our last point. The resolve in Mary's response. Do you hear her words there? I'll be your servant. I'll do my part. Whatever happens to me, let it, let it be according to your word. It was full of power. It was full of resolve. But did you also hear the accompanying notes of somber, sort of sadness a bit, surrender, whatever happens, let it be. Why was that? Because she knew that believing in this means that her whole life from then on out will revolve around her role in this redemption story. What else is she going to do if this is true? What if the world ridicules her for this pregnancy, which they did? Let it be. What if Joseph for a time misunderstands her like he did in Matthew chapter 1? Let it be. What if this means that her role now will revolve on raising this child properly because he's like God, you know, so it's put effort into it. What if her role revolves around her raising this child as best as she can humanly possibly do? Let it be. And, 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 and sure, she wouldn't herself die for the gospel, but eventually, though she didn't know this yet at the time, she would have to watch her child die for the gospel. Her, her God, not just her child, sure, but in a human level experience, still her child that she carried in her womb and raised herself, she'll have to watch him die the most grueling death. And if you ask me, would I rather watch myself die or my child die, I'll choose me any day. This is exemplary faith. This is unbelievable faith. Do you see what this means? Listen, this means that faith is not measured by the lack of questions. It's measured by a changed life. Faith is not measured by a lack of questions. It's measured by a changed life. See, you might be here today, and you got tons of answer questions, and you're asking them. You really are seeking. You really are inquiring. But as you seek these answers, you also find in your heart warmness toward the gospel. And, and you notice that. You know, you notice how your life is slowly being transformed by the good news that God personally pursued your soul. If that's where you are, don't let those questions scare you. It's okay. Don't let anyone tell you that those questions are signs of unbelief. It's not. Like Mary, it means you're taking your faith seriously. The proof of faith isn't seen by the lack of questions. It's seen by the presence of a changed life. Is your life changed? But, on the other hand, you may be here today 
and you have like no questions. You have like zero questions, you're good. Yet at the same time, your life has not changed at all. Like outside of our time here, you still really live for yourself. You care very little about the things of God. You do moral and religious rituals and good things, sure, but like the people in the temple in scene one, you're doing it because somehow you feel like doing them can make God come down and sweep you and save you. You don't feel for what God has done for you on the cross. And unlike Mary, you have no desire to arrange your life around the advancement of God's gospel mission. If that's you, then let me tell you, your lack of questions do not necessarily prove faith. It could prove merely indifference. Indifference. And I would urge you, because I love you, to start taking this seriously. Because all stakes are high. If this is a lie, look into it, okay? If this is a lie, then I bid you to run away as fast as you can and never look back. Why would you? This gospel demands too much of your life. Run. But if it's true, if God really did punch a hole through space and time to live the life you couldn't live and die the death you should have died so that he can give you eternal life that you never earned, if you find that to be true, then go to God, not with your lack of questions, Go to God with Mary's answer. Behold, I'm your servant, and let it be to me according to your word. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in utter need of mercy and grace because we cannot on our own with our own reasoning and logic no matter how excellent it may be come to the conclusion that the gospel is real just as much as a virgin can give birth just as much as dead people can raise out of tombs we can't reason deadness into life. For that, we are dependent on the creator of all things to give us his life, breathing breath as he did in Genesis and cause this dead heart to beat spiritually. May you have this mercy upon all those who are here today as they hear the gospel. Harden not their hearts to it, but let them believe and see and know that this is true and that you really took on flesh and blood for them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.